on episode 38 of DevTalk, I speak to Imo Landworth about the past, present, and future of .NET. Welcome to another episode of DevTalk. My name is Kerry Lothrop, and today's guest is Imo Landworth. Imo is a product manager on the .NET platform team at Microsoft, and I'm very happy to have him on the show. Hello, Imo. Hey, Annie. How's it going? I'm, I'm great. It's evening here, and you are on the west coast of the US, and how is it there? It's amazing. It's super warm. It's uh, 18 degrees Celsius, whatever that is in freedom units. I don't know, but <laughs> it feels quite warm. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to the Celsius. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and you, uh, is everybody still indoors in Seattle or are people outside? No, everybody is still under quarantine. I think the in Washington State, they recently uh, opened the public, start, uh, the public parks again. So you can go mm -hmm. to the state parks and national parks. Okay. Actually, I'm not sure about national parks, but definitely state parks. And uh, the only thing they tell you is, if you're if the, if they become too crowded, they will close it again. So they're still highly encouraging social distancing, right? You know, six feet apart, two meters, and uh, there are signs everywhere. But people are basically already outside because sitting inside only works for so long, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm in Germany, which is your former home or where where you originally from? Yes, I'm and, originally from uh, Germany. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're starting to open up here and it's kind of a strange feeling. Everybody's a bit, um, you know, cautious or some people aren't and, and um, you don't know who you encounter. Yesterday we went hiking and then somebody approached our kid and then touched him to look at his T-shirt. And I'm, I was like, this is this is wrong. I don't uh, I don't understand some people, but um, yeah, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a thing here as well. Like the so yesterday we went to a small hike and uh, some family dropped uh, I don't know a T-shirt or something. So I asked them whether that's theirs, and then they said yes. And so I was about to pick it up, and then my girlfriend reminded me, "Don't touch it." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's a that's a good point. I probably shouldn't." Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's very much uh, fighting against your you know natural habits, I guess. Yeah, of course, especially hard for kids then uh, because they don't they don't know uh, what a virus is or anything. But uh, but even for our, for us old people, uh, like at least me, I'm old, and um, yeah, you become accustomed to so many things, and now everything is different. <laughs> so about the the work you're doing, you're a product manager. Can you explain a little bit what that is? Yeah, so my job description is one of those weird ones because Microsoft basically came up with it. So uh, my official title at Microsoft is Program Manager, but most people don't know what that actually is. We also mm -hmm. have the title of Product Manager, but in, at Microsoft World, that's somebody who does marketing most of the time. And, uh, you know, as developers, you always look down on marketing, right? But marketing really means uh, in this context, you know, finding an audience and like defining the overall product strategy, right? Like which product offerings should we have, right? My job as a program manager is mostly about feature design. So what I'm doing is I'm engineering the product, if you will, right? I'm not building the product in the sense that as a developer would, right? I'm not writing the actual code, but I have to basically talk to customers and understand what scenarios a customer wants to accomplish with the software. And then I try to engineer a feature set where, you know, with as few features as possible, you effectively have a compelling and understandable offering that allows the customer to do whatever they need to do. And the product you're working on, or the program you're working on, is is .NET itself. Yes. Yeah, so, like, uh, I'm on the .NET platform team. So, like, we own the you know the the 
bottom part of the stack. I, I always I used to say core, but now core is very ambiguous, so I try to avoid the phrase core. But yeah, it's really what it is, like the you know the the platform core, right? So like uh, you know my my buddy Rich Lander, he is the PM on the runtime side. I'm the PM on the on the class library side. So I own the you know the the managed API surface, if you will, and he owns the runtime, right? The JIT, the GC, that sort of thing, right? And um, yeah, so that's basically what we do, right? We basically try to understand what customers do with the stack. And that's, you know, you know, everybody who writes any sort of .NET code is basically a customer of ours. But even on our end, there's like different kinds of customers, right? There's, you know, the average Joe who just writes some code and has questions. Uh, and mm-hmm. then there is the, you know, the, the big partners, right? Let's say Unity or, you know, before we acquired them, Xamarin, who take uh, you know, different, you know, they basically build a whole product offering around the platform itself. So that's a platform partner, right? If you make sure that we have the right, you know, features at the platform layer that they can work, right? Whether that's rehosting the runtime or whether that's, you know, do we have a JIT that can emit the right architecture uh, that you're targeting or that sort of thing, right? Okay. But how, how much, before we dive into the tech, how much of your time do you spend with like customers and how much time do you spend with the, the .NET team at Microsoft? That's a great question. So uh, right now, I would say I will probably spend most of my time talking to customers. I mean, it, 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 but it's also very seasonal, right? It kind of depends on where you are in the product cycle, right? Uh, mm-hmm. At Microsoft, we used to do these like two-year, three-year release cycles where um, you basically go dark for a very sh- long period, and then yeah, you blog about it. But it's basically from a customer standpoint, nothing is happening for, con- for you know for quite a while, and then we do the big reveal, right? And in that world, it was very, very much so that it was seasonal, right? You basically do a lot of upfront investment with customers, and then you spend a lot of your time with the engineering team, building the product, and then tuning from there. And every time there's a public preview of something, then yes, you shift again back to the customer. But basically, most of your time is on the on the engineering side. But now with open source and GitHub, we kind of have moved to a uh, kind of real-time engagement model of our customers, right? Because I don't really have to do the big reveal, right? We just earlier before the recording started, we talked about build, right? And you know, the thing for .NET is, on the one hand side, it's kind of sad that you know when you go to build or some of our conferences, you are really surprised by what we have to announce because you know everything mm-hmm. is happening uh, in open source all the time. But on the other hand, it's very good because it means we can we can make sure that we can talk about solutions for much longer than we used to, right? We can, we can, uh, f- you know, find a way with the community to engage on the really important issues that are just very tactical in nature, like small things we should just do. So we just do them. And then there is a bunch of this like, more like long yield kind of investment talk, right? Where we, where we think about how we evolve the platform. Right. And that's, especially for the, you know, the layer I am working on, you know, as a, as a, as a platform person, you have to have patience, right? That like most of the scrum stuff people talk about, where you talk about MVPs and giving people something fast, that is very hard at the platform layer, right? I, we really can't give people quickly, let's say a JIT for a new architecture, right? Or a new kind of GC or, um, you know, a new, uh, you know, experience. We have to really talk a little bit more about what they need before we, uh, can actually ship it, right? And so that's mm-hmm. that's one of those things where in, in my world now, I spend a great deal of time talking to customers on, on GitHub. And it's kind of like all the time now, right? It, it's not really the seasonal thing anymore uh, where it's like three months of requirements engineering and then, you know, six months of working with the engineering team. Um, now it's more like, you know, a little bit of customer talk, a little bit of engineering talk, right? It's it, You're very much at the the steering wheel of a car, right? Where steering happens all the time, right? You don't really think of, oh, now it's time for steering, now it's time for acceleration, right? You, they, they all go hand in hand, right? Yeah. 
So I work in, in consulting and we, we don't have our own products. We just develop products for customers. And a lot of that job is talking to the customers and seeing what they really need. And uh, maybe it's, it's the analogy is there is that you're, you're doing the, yeah, well, I guess scrum or you're doing the agile development. You're, you're just transferring that onto the platform and it used to be more of a waterfall, right? Yeah, so waterfall is one of those things that has a lot of, I think, <laughs> negative connotation with it. But uh, right, yeah, I, I've gotten on record multiple times that I said, you know, waterfall is actually a good methodology if you have a lot mm -hmm. of people, right? So if you build a space shuttle, or you know, maybe the space shuttle is not the best analogy because it was not well done on the engineering <laughs> side. But if you look at the Apollo program, right, that was very well executed, right, and that's kind of a typical waterfall program where. You know, what's the MVP of going to the moon, right? It's, it's hard to break this down because the kind of engines you would have to build to go to the moon is very different from the kind of engines you would build to go to, let's say, the nearest Whole Foods, right? So you can't mm -hmm. really scale things up in that in that vicinity. And that's kind of how I feel many of the Microsoft things are also, right? If you build an operating system or a cloud, it's really hard to do MVPs in this in, in this world, right? You really have to think about the big problems for a long time and, and find solutions before you can do anything. And I think in this world, waterfall is actually really good. This you know methodology, and we still have a lot of programs, sorry, problems that are in that in that in that space, right? So, for example, one thing we have been talking about for years is a linker, right? And static linking in .NET is a fundamentally very difficult problem because the whole environment is very dynamic, and it's very hard to turn the crank on this and now you know give you a different set of tools that allow you to do static linking because the entire ecosystem isn't really set up to think about things statically. And mm -hmm. so that that takes a long time and there's a lot of work that goes into that. And I think since .NET Core V1, we have talked about this. So it's like four years in the coming and we still don't really have a, you know, a, a released version of a linker that works in all scenarios. And then there's other things where it's like, yeah, I don't know, like there's some overload that somebody wants to add to some method on a list of T, right? Like there really is no point in me writing a spec that is like four pages long, right? It's just one one method overload, so let's just do it, right? And I feel like what we're trying to achieve with .NET is that we, that we use the paradigm that makes sense for a given problem, right? Some problems are more long yield, so, you know, taking a step back, writing a spec, driving it from a, from, from a more, you know, paper-based approach makes sense. Um, and then there's other approaches where it's like, yeah, let's just quickly come together, do a scrum or whatever you want to call this, right? And just, you know, do stuff, right? And um, that certainly has been a challenge because DevDiv used to be on these, you know, long release cycles where everything was kind of waterfall-ish, right? We, Microsoft had this own, I forgot what the name was, but basically it's waterfall with milestones, if you will, right? Where it's kind of iterative, but still kind of waterfall-ish. And now we basically have moved to whatever your team wants to do, which creates a lot of chaos. But I think that also enables the teams to effectively not run a single you know, dimension uh, for an, a software engineering approach, but pick the engineering approach for the problem. And that might be different approaches for different problems while it's still the same team. So, I mean, I think long story short is we don't do Scrum, basically, <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So you did this big switch a while back, quite a few years back now, that you you went from from this waterfall-ish to uh, agile to Scrum and to open, and then and at the same time there was the decision to basically throw all the code away and do everything again. Yeah, I mean, I think we have never really done that. I mean, like the, that that might look like it, but. The vast majority of the source code you see on GitHub is 
the same source code that ships with .NET Framework, right? We haven't really thrown code away. We have, mm-hmm. we have copied the code, we have heavily modified it, and we no longer have a merged relationship with the original source code in .NET Framework. But you can really think of .NET Core as a as a as a heavily refactored fork of .NET Framework. So, okay, like I think last time I looked at the numbers, I think just the runtime and the core class library is like three million lines of code or four million lines of code. Roslyn is like three million lines of code, right? And then you add all the other things like WinForms and WPF, and now you're talking like 10, 15 billion lines of code, right? So that's uh, that's not something you can easily throw away and start over and then have yeah. anything available for a long time. So we never did that, but like we we have certainly like it certainly feels like a reset because if you work internally, you know, let's say in the good old TFS days, right, where everything is centralized, that's a very different workflow from being on GitHub where you have no longer a single repository even, right? You have like, you know, I think we have 200, 300 repos or something on on, uh, on GitHub, right? And that's a very different style of development, right? And then there's the whole openness to it, right? So before, you know, people like me were the front man, if you will, of the show, right? I'm the one in videos. I'm the one that, you know, goes to conferences uh, or people like me, I should say, right? All the, all the program managers. And that also doesn't really work with GitHub anymore, right? Now, basically everybody who is a senior engineer and owns a feature is kind of also a community PM for his feature, right? Because they are on GitHub, they're answering questions from customers, they are talking to people that are submitting PRs, right? So, on the one hand side, that's that's um, was quite a change for the team. But uh, pretty much everybody on my team that I talk to says they cannot imagine now working on something closed source because it's such a rewarding environment where you're not just an engineer; you're also having direct exposure to customers and. I feel like that has also fundamentally shifted the way our engineers feel about the product. Before it was just a thing I work on. Now it's a thing I work on, but I actually see people using it and they're happy, or I can see when they're un- uh, when they're unhappy, right? And that's that's something that before was always the PMs coming back from the conference telling the engineering team that everybody's angry and we need to talk about this. And now you don't have to have these conversations anymore because people people see it for themselves. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's really interesting. I I. You know the you you took over Xamarin in twenty or not you but Microsoft took over Xamarin in twenty sixteen, and uh, they had a complete open source implementation of the .NET framework called Mono. Yep. And so this basically became my, part of Microsoft at, at that point. And uh, you mentioned the linker. I think that that's for, for example something they had been working on and that was actually had a pretty good stage there and and how much of the what was once mono has flowed into what your team is now both technology wise and also like uh they were doing this this open development long before you were doing that right so i mean that's basically the the thing is that um you know, even before we acquired Xamarin, we had a very tight relationship with them basically ever since we open source. I mean, even before that, we worked with them, but mm-hmm. that was much harder because we couldn't really work with them on deliverables because we couldn't give them anyone. Uh, but like since we open source, we worked with Xamarin very closely. And so they already started, you know, submitting PRs for things that they wanted. And uh, by and large, what ended up happening is you look at Mono today, I don't have the exact numbers, but uh, based on what I've heard from the Mono team, it's basically... A third of Mono is the parts of the, the of the .NET Framework code base. A third of it is is the .NET Core code base that they already started to suck in uh, as soon as we open sourced. And then there's still a third that is their own. And so, 
by the time we acquired them, that already was the case, right? So there was already a lot of overlap between what we had and what they had. So mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like a massive, you know, change after the acquisition. In fact, the acquisition for most people on the team just felt like, oh my God, I thought we already did this years ago kind of thing. And uh, uh, that really hasn't changed much. But I think it's interesting, as you mentioned, like that because we weren't open source, right? They kind of had to start from scratch, right? They couldn't just take anything that we had and, and build on top of it. And so basically they had to re-implement literally everything, right? They have their own GC, their own JIT, their own everything. And um, that is a very hard problem to reconcile, right? Because once you diverge, people depend on the diverged behavior and then it's hard to hard to go back, right? So one thing mm-hmm. they did, for example, was, you know, iOS is a very different platform from Windows or Android because you can't JIT. So they had to build a linker that basically generates all the code in the lab and then ship that. And that's the iOS runtime. And Microsoft has done something similar. We have uh, UWP, right? And we our UWP, uh, you know, version pretty much version one solution was uh, we just run on .NET Framework, and then the version two solution was you know, it's an actual platform that that actually is custom and there's an actual AOT solution. And uh, this is very different from what they have. And uh, the one we had was very specific to Windows. It was very specific to WinRT, and uh, we basically decided to discontinue it in favor of you know, reinvesting in what Mono has and making that a bigger story. And um, so the to, so basically when you look at the AOT story, it's basically Mono versus on the JIT story, it's basically CoreCLR, which is basically what we have. And so the way I think about it is that, you know, it's really not an us versus their mentality. It's basically you have a buffet of features and you just pick the best one for a given solution. And then you try to get rid of all the, you know, details that are different just because different timelines happen, right? And th- basically, that's what Mono has done already, right? They basically ripped out most of their class library uh, code in favor of ours because ours was very easy to integrate, right? Versus on the runtime side, replacing runtime features is a lot harder because they don't tend to be isolated, right? Like if you just want to change the JIT, you kind of have to change the GC because the JIT and the GC are inter- you know very closely talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So that's very hard for them, but like the, the there is a there is a an idea that we basically converts the runtimes more aggressively over over the next you know years basically, but it will take time. So, yeah. So so now .NET five is coming up, and I think it's it's also uh, things are coming together again. So .NET Core and and also Mono are becoming this .NET five. Or how do how do they relate to each other in, in terms of .NET five? Yeah, think of .NET. I mean, I guess the one way to think about this is that Mono is kind of like a, a, not a very well-defined term because mm-hmm. Mono can either mean the .NET framework re-implementation cross-platform, right? Or Mono can mean the Mono source tree, right? So for example, when you talk about Xamarin, Xamarin uses the Mono source tree, but they basically have their own you know, pr- you know preprocessor symbols. So when they build the Xamarin stack, they don't take all of Mono, right? They take some part of Mono uh, that is, you know, makes sense to run on on a on a device, and then mm-hmm. there's some code that is unique to Xamarin, right? So when you when you talk about Mono, most of the time people refer to Mono as the source tree, right? Not as the product, uh, okay. which is the .NET framework equivalent, right? So if you think of Mono as the .NET framework equivalent for Linux, then I would say that is that is uh, you know still in use, of course, in the same way the .NET framework is still in use, but that's not something that we particularly care about, right? Like that's something that we still evolve, of course, but in the same way the .NET Framework investment has kind of slowed down, the 
you know, the .NET framework on Linux, aka Mono, is also slowing down in that in that dimension, right? But the source tree as a whole is under active development because you know there's many other things that are done with it, right? There's you know Unity. Unity is basically similar to Xamarin in own build out of the Mono source tree plus their own stuff on top. And then Xamarin mm-hmm. is basically another example. And so that's let me say Mono is super actively developed. That's what we really mean, right? That 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 whole code base is uh, you know something that we of course care about. And I feel like in the long run, that code base and the .NET Core code base will converge much, much, much more. In which case, there really isn't a difference between the Mono source tree and the .NET Core source tree. At some point, it's just the same thing. It's just the .NET Core open source world. And um, that's also why we kind of removed the branding core now. We basically try to talk about .NET 5, .NET 6 as .NET, right? The, the entire product effectively, rather than unique slices to the product, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, I think .NET Core was first called .NET Core 5. It's kind of confusing. But the, b- before the first release, is that, is that true? Yeah, so they, so they, <laughs> if you step back, right, like uh, the whole effort started pretty much in the Windows 8 timeframe, right? And there were a few requirements that were becoming clear. One of them was, uh, on one inside, there was Windows. Windows wanted this, you know, new device experience. You know, that was when Windows Phone was still relevant, and mm-hmm. they had their own tablets, and they wanted effectively similar to iOS, I guess, a version of the operating system that was more optimized for smaller devices, but also heavily optimized for touch, right? So that was one pressure. The other pressure we 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 had was on the server side. So the ASP.NET team knew that, you know, IIS and you know. ASP.NET in form of system.web on, on .NET Framework wasn't the right choice in the long run, right? There were already like things on the horizon, like containers and Linux and cloud-based stuff that ASP.NET as it was, wasn't good enough for, right? And so that's why we, so we called it five because it was the logical successor of .NET Framework, which was at the time also, you know, 4.X, right? I think it was 4.5 at the time. And yeah. so that's where the, where, the, where, the, where the five came from, right? But then, you know, as the requirements, you know, kind of crystallize more and more, it becomes very quickly clear that you can't just take .NET Framework and treat it as .NET Framework with all the backwards compatibility guarantees that that, that comes with. It needs to be a different kind of product. It needs to be basically a different offering that you have to do. Basically, yeah, you have to port your apps to, right? Because there, there will be breaking changes. There will be things that we can't make work. And that yeah. happened both on the Windows side as well as on the on the course on the on the on the ASP.NET side. And at the time, I remember this vividly, there was a meeting at some point where we talked about how we call this thing that we use for Windows. And the way we designed the Windows side was, well, this is a lean version of .NET Framework, right? That we considered the core, right? Like this, is the, this, is the, this is the smallest thing we can think of that still is valuable. Um, and so that's how the name .NET Core came to be. But there was a very small meeting. I was in there with like four other people. We were all very junior people, by the way. Like I think the highest ranking person was a principal at the time, but there was no VP, right? There was just us sitting in a room deciding what, 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 you know, what this small engineering artifact should be called, right? And then later mm-hmm. on, when we actually talked about .NET Core as the product that we ship for, you know, for, for a cross-platform and, 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 and open source, I don't know who, but somebody up the chain made the decision to reuse that name for that. And so basically at the time, Core, core meant what engineer thinks of Core. But then, uh, of course, when more people get involved, the marketing gets involved. Sometimes names go interesting places, <laughs> uh, and so that's that's how we ended up with this weird thing that we have with .NET Core, and that's also why it was originally called Five because it was supposed to be the the, the, the successor. But then, when it was clear, it was a reset. They just called it .NET Core 1.0, right? And it was the same time frame when ASP.NET thought about their stuff, right? They had this thing called DNX and many other things that were prototypes, basically that was was all about taking 
taking parts of .NET Framework and run them basically outside of it, right? And that's that that's basically what became .NET Core v uh, yeah, v1 basically. Yeah, but I guess at, at when .NET Core 1.0 was released, .NET it wasn't ready yet to be a full successor. You couldn't tell your customers, "Oh, don't worry, you, you'll have some effort." You, you but please port to to, to .NET Core because <clears throat> nothing a lot a lot of things weren't there yet. But but now with when .NET Core three is there, and uh, it's it's starting to look like now it's ready for to to tell basically most of your customers it's it's safe to switch now. Right. I mean, like that's that goes back to a strategy, right? So the Windows folks had a, a different kind of strategy in mind that we now have in mind, I guess. So the so the Windows folks basically treated this thing as a reset, right? They they, they deliberately said. In order to run UWP apps, you have to redesign your app. You have to re, you know reimagine your app. I think was the phrase yeah. they used. And I guess on the one hand side, this makes sense because when you when you took it when you when, when Microsoft has tried this before, right? If you look back, we had this thing called Windows XP Tablet Edition, right? Which was a build of Windows XP that you could operate with a stylus. And yeah. I we all know that it didn't stick for some reason, right? And I think part of the mm -hmm. reason why it didn't stick was it's not the experience you really want when you have a touch based device, right? And then I think the the thing that really changed the mainstream perception of touch devices was the first iPhone, I think partially because of capacitive touch, which is just a very different user experience, but also because somebody sat down and designed the UX for, for touch, right? And yeah. I think that's kind of what Windows wanted to drive home is that you need to really do that. Otherwise, the experience will be like Windows XP Tablet Edition, where it's like, yeah, it kind of sort of works, but not really. But then unfortunately, when you take these messages of like, okay, we need to start fresh, and you give this to 3,000 engineers, what you're ending up with is something that is not very compatible with the past, right? And that was, I think, partially desired and partially uh, an engineering artifact that just happened to be. But the end result is that, yeah, it's very hard to, for, for anybody to take any investments they have um, and move them to UWP, right? And and yeah. as a consequence also to .NET Core v.1 because that was the, uh, you know, the thing we designed for Windows 8, right? And... Uh, that is, I think, why partially it's so hard to move to core. And then when .NET Core 2.0 happened, that's basically our answer to that. Like one of the major takeaways for 2.0 for for the, for the product direction was we need to make the stuff much, much more compatible with .NET Framework. Right? People have too many lines of code they want to reuse. And I think they were, this goes back to what is engineering reality you find yourself in, right? Reimagining your UI makes sense, right? But if you if look from a, from, a, from a web standpoint, I mean, if I move my app from Windows to Linux, I don't want to reimagine how my UI looks like, right? Because it's a completely orthogonal choice, right? It's still a website, so it still works the same way. I may use JavaScript, I may not. It doesn't matter, right? It's just a website. When you move to touch, sure, you want to reimagine your touch or your UI input, but you don't want to necessarily reimagining how you store database objects or how you how you do logging or how you do... Uh, you know, dependency injection, right? All these things are just things that should just work, right? You have done them for 15 years. Why should they not work differently? And the reason they work differently is just because we changed the platform at a very low level because we cleaned it up, right? We removed the things that we didn't like. But um, for two, we basically said, okay, screw this. Let's just go back and look at all the APIs people actually need to have in order to, to be successful and add them back to the platform. And that's basically what .NET Standard 2.0 is. That's what .NET Core 2.0 is. It's this whole idea of like, yep, Going somewhere else, there are some breaking changes, but let's also acknowledge there's a past and there's a there's an ecosystem that we need to drag along for the ride. And in order to do that, they have to have the right tech, right? And that's that's the thing where we pivoted more strongly towards, you know, making more stuff work. Um, 
What's funny is now you can ask like, what's easier to just start with .NET Core small and grow it, or was it, or would it, would it have been better to just start up with .NET Framework and cut things down? <laughs> and hmm. uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I would say though, from an open source standpoint, starting small certainly had its benefits, right? When we open sourced, .NET Core was relatively small, but also much more easy to join, I guess. And so I think our part of the engagement that we got in the early days was because you were smaller. I think I, I feel like that's that that's likely true too. And I heard a big sigh of relief when there came the announcements that WPF and even WinForms is supported on .NET Core now. And then everybody was like, "Okay, now now is the time to switch." Okay, the, you convinced us now. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's another example of uh, you know. Uh, kind of trying to identify what customers do, right? So one of the value adds of .NET Core is that you can carry your own implementation of the framework, right? You can be self-contained. So mm -hmm. if you're TurboTax, for example, like it's very weird for you to write a setup that has to effectively install .NET Framework on the box if the, one, if the version you're targeting isn't there yet. But that's actually very complicated, right? Because your setup now has to chain an, another setup that other setup might reboot your machine. So your setup has to be able to resume after a reboot. And so that's actually fairly complicated. And then on top of that, you have all the compat issues where some other app on the system might update the framework you're running on and suddenly your app is broken. And um, so with .NET Core, the idea is you can go self-contained and bring your own framework, right? Basically, you have the entire app on a USB stick if you wanted to, even with the entire runtime. And you can always run this, um, no matter what operating system you're on, all the way down to Win 7. And um, everything just works. And that is a scenario that clearly makes sense for desktop apps as well, right? That's not something that is only for console apps or ASP.NET apps, right? And so adding WinForms and WPF on top of Core to reap those benefits as well makes complete sense, right? But of course, that doesn't take away that, you know, if you want to build a touch-based Windows app that, you know, WinForms is probably not the technology to choose, right? <laughs> it just means that if I have a WinForms app because it already exists and I'm, and I'm happy with it, all I want is self-contained. I shouldn't have to reimagine my UI. I should just be able to target my app, move it to .NET Core, maybe make some adjustments here and there, but then basically have the app running again, right? Yeah. And I know where these, these things come in. I'm in a customer project where we have a WPF application and we have a server side too, also with, with .NET. The server side's been ported to .NET Core and uh, it's a self-contained ex executable now. And the the client side where we're yearning to port it to, uh, to .NET Core because of this self-containment thing, because we have the requirements, it has to be uh, installable and runnable without administrator rights, administrative mm -hmm. rights. So, and, and the requirement is Windows 10 upwards. So that's, that's pretty good. But if you look at what, what's the minimum version for, for Windows 10 for .NET Framework, it's 4.6. So we're basically stuck on that version because we cannot bundle in, in an installer for .NET Framework with the application, uh, or we could not up until now. And, and now, uh, yeah, this is going to work and makes us happy that uh, this is now possible. I mean, that was the number one, I think, complaint. I mean, I joined the team in 2010. I was an intern in 2009, and I'm a customer since 2002 on .NET, I guess, the first betas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, with .NET Framework 1.1 and 2.0, it was all fine, right? And then since the 4X series started, like, the, the framework in-place update was the biggest problem that people had. And it's kind of like, since I'm on the team, it's the number one thing I, I, I keep hearing complaints about. And uh, it's also the thing that constrained us as the team the most because it's very hard to, uh, you know, basically make changes in the same way where 
people can advance and, and innovate without breaking people, right? And we have done extraordinary things to do both. And that comes with a massive engineering tax. Um, a very small example is a race sort, right? We, we basically know that our race sort is a textbook quicksort implementation. But the problem with quicksort is you have to decide, you know, where your pivot element is. And I can craft you malicious input where I can force your implementation to go down the what we call the pathological case, where you basically become an n-squared algorithm, which is mm -hmm. really bad for servers, right? Because now I can send you a payload that I know that you spend a lot of CPU time processing. And uh, we said, okay, we need to fix that. Unfortunately, when you change sorting, you will break apps because people, of course, don't decide that it depends on the sorting behavior, but they only test on a particular implementation and it works and then they ship it. And they don't know that they accidentally depend on, on very specifics of the sort algorithm. And so when we change this to what we call, like I guess it's called introspection sort, it's basically like quick sort, but you kind of look at the data to decide where your pivot element is to actually not be n squared. And um, it should generally result in the same outputs, but... There was this one example that I saw. It was, I think, a WinForms app uh, where somebody had a, a table layout control and they added a bunch of controls to it. And I think the, you associate the row with the control. And so they insert, like, they all mark them as row zero. And the old implementation, when you call sort on it, would just not do anything. And so the end result is that the form is top to bottom. But okay. with introspection sort, because of the way we select, yeah, we kind of changed elements around, even though they were sorting-wise identical, which is, of course, legal because the sort is not guaranteed to be stable. But the end result was that the form was upside down, yet the last element is the first, and the first element is the last. And so, of course, people weren't very happy with that. <laughs> and so it's an example where you can do, you can try to do the right thing on the engineering side, but then every time you now make a change, you basically have to write code along the lines of, if application was compiled for the older version, here's the old behavior. Otherwise, here's the new behavior, right? And that gets very complicated. And uh, of course, that also means that your code gets more bloated over time. And so that was one of the reasons why we said, okay, we really need to find a way how we can give app, con app authors more control than what version of the framework they're using. And basically with .NET Core, we, I think we kind of have squared the circle almost because we, we basically give people two options. We give people the centralized option with a centralized framework, uh, but we also allow you to install any version you want side by side. So that's different from .NET Framework, where we decide what you can install side by side. Um, and then we also give it the option to say, screw this, I just carry my own implementation. And if I wanted to even run a linker over it and remove the stuff I don't need, and then you have very compact apps. And um, I think that's a really nice model. Um, they have both pros and cons, of course, and there's no one size fits all, because one of the downsides with not having centralized deployments is how do you patch, right? How do you... How do you update the, the framework without breaking applications? If you are self-contained, then we can't do that. But I think the idea for self-contained is generally speaking that you should only use self-contained when you control the app deployment, right? If you are, for example, using an app store or you're using um, any sort of like, you know, auto updater that you wrote yourself where you basically can push updates to your own server and then the client pulls it automatically, right? Then you're effectively owning servicing for the framework at that point. Um, and with centralized deployments, you can just say, yeah, I'm like a .NET Framework app. I just require .NET you know, Core 2.1 or whatever. And then as long as you have that, I'm, I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, happy. And there's some auto roll forward policy that we have where we generally speaking will allow you to roll forward across minor versions. So if you're, let's say, built for 2.0, but the only thing we find is 2.1, we will roll forward to 2.1. But if you install 2.0 uh, side by side, then we will bind to the 2.0 version. So you can effectively say, yeah, if... if, if 
go forward, breaks any of my apps, I just install the matching version of the framework and that will generally fix those issues. There are so many different, .NET is being used in so many different places. There are so many different domains. Uh, we, have, we have customers, they're, they're always online, cloud first, everything. And then we have customers uh, where uh, the, the project I was talk just talking about, uh, it's, it, we're, we know they don't have any internet access. This is being used in manufacturing. And uh, this this is just great to have this this complete control over that. It's I think it's great that you you have these these choices and you can you can you've found ways to make everyone happy and make .NET a good good solution for for almost all problems. Yeah, what's funny is that like uh, you know the early days of .NET .NET was an XE you had to install right. It was just a, a we call it the Redis right. We just had the redistributable that you would download and install. And then we thought we will make deployment issues go away if we bundle .NET framework with the operating system. The idea being that it's always there, right? You can always depend on it, right? <laughs> and that was a very much a V1 or V2 thought because if you think this thought to a logical conclusion, of course, you don't have one, right? You have multiple versions. And then the question is how people reason about these different versions. And that's what created the the nightmare for us on uh, with Windows and .NET framework being bundled. Because updating Node.NET framework meant you have to go through Windows updates, which, as we all know, is all great when stuff works, but it's really bad when stuff doesn't work. And Windows itself, updating it is not super hard, I guess, because you have a C ABI and you can reason about inputs and outputs. And Windows has this shim mechanism where they can effectively have a compat shim that sits between the app and the operating system and can effectively change what the app is asking and also can change what the operating system returns. And so in this oh, yeah. way, if you have a compat issue, you can effectively insert a custom shim for, let's say, TurboTax to make stuff work. That doesn't really work for an object-oriented or, object framework, right? Writing shims for this is virtually impossible, so we don't have them, which now means, yeah, if we ship an update to .NET Framework, well, how do you know that you didn't break somebody, right? And the answer is, we're just really careful not to touch it, right? <laughs> but like the, that is, in the long run, not a, not a winning proposition, right? So... Uh, sometimes it's funny when you look back in history and you, people had good intentions, but then the design choices they made turned out to make things worse, not better, right? And that's, I I like to think we learned from this and I think .NET Core has, uh, has made some massive improvements, but, you know, we also changed so many other things that I'm also pretty sure that we made other mistakes. <laughs> so, and that's why uh, it's always interesting to work in this space because it never gets boring, right? There's new problems, there's new spins and it's it's just a fun place to be. I bet. So, what are you working on next? So, I know .NET five is five is on the horizon. Then the RTM version will be six. And uh, where is this path leading us to? Yeah, I mean, like I think from from our point of view, I think the 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 projection that we set out uh, a few years ago is still up to date. We are basically trying to be a .NET like be a developer platform that you can use to build any kind of app, right? And Today we already have offerings, you know, for mobile. We have offerings for um, for desktop. We have offerings for web and cloud in general. And uh, basically, most of our investment right now is to make to make that smoother, right? To basically remove the number of differences that these different models have and make that easier to share code. Um, and then, of course, performance, right? We have always optimized per. But that's kind of the the, the main theme, I guess, for five O. And then for six O, I mean, it's hard to say, right? It's hard to look in the future, but. If you look back, if you look at .NET Framework, the, the, the major vision hasn't changed, right? When .NET Framework started, 
that gave you two programming models, right? WinForms and WebForms. And the idea was to have a similar programming model on both sides to make it easy for you to write web apps and, and, and desktop apps. And I guess that's still true today, right? We try to make it easier for you to write whatever app you need to write. And um, I think on our side, there's so much other stuff that needs to happen, right? I mean, you know, Xamarin Forms is great, but it probably needs some 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 more power, right? WinForms and WPF are, you know, somewhat dated in the way they approach things for data mining, for example. So there's always things we can do to make things, you know, more smooth and better. And um, I don't think it will get boring, but it's also very hard to like, crisply say like this is the things you will be working on because i think for us at this point it's mostly fundamentals right there's improvements we can do across the board and some of these improvements uh, you know may sound not too big right now if i would say them but <laughs> i think if i give you an actual feature that would do that um that can be very significant right and i, I feel like that's that's kind of where we are with .NET. it's a very mature platform yeah well i'll make sure to make put a link to the roadmap of .NET into the show notes so this is all public and, and anyone can participate if they want something. Yeah, and at this point, most people who listen to this probably have watched the build recordings uh, or even participated in the live streams. If you haven't, check them out because there's a bunch of cool stuff that uh, I guess from my point of view, we will announce or from your point of view, already have announced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So th this is recorded on Monday, the 18th of May and build is this week. So I'm excited about it too. Yeah, check it out. So thank you very much, Imo. That was that was really interesting. What what you're working on, and and so I I always have a feeling that .NET is in good hands when I when I see you talk about the platform there. Yeah, the one thing I want to point out, I'm one of like thirty or forty PMs, right? So like, uh, I guess it's even more now with them, right? I think it's fifty PMs or something. So like, <laughs> sometimes mm -hmm. it might be like there's only a small people behind that product, but. There's a very large number of them, and um, I, I'm by nowhere near the most important person. So, if you want to check us out, we are on we are pretty much my entire team is on Twitter, um, and there's a bunch of things we do with community standups where you can find more people like me that are that are experts in certain other areas. So, I'm not the only one to follow. <laughs> okay, I will add the links to the recording notes. So thanks again, and uh, I hope you have, have a wonderful time in the .NET team in years to come. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of DevTalk, and we'll see each other again in two weeks. Bye-bye.